Okay, hello friends, and welcome to a new Chabura three-part member series exploring what Chazal thought of and how they engaged with the Greco-Roman philosophy and culture around them. As mentioned, this is a member series, but part one is going to be public, and the Chabura works on a membership model, and I highly recommend all to become a member, which can be done through our website, and take advantage of all of the awesome content we have, and also to support our initiatives, such as our publishing house. Uh, speaking of, we are excited to have recently published a new book titled Understanding Chazal, which is a new English translation and commentary of Rabbi Avraham ben Harambam's classic guide on understanding Midrashim and Agadot. The book was translated and written by our very own Rabbi Tzchak Berdugo, and we are very excited to have him come from Miami to London to be with us between the 5th and the 8th for different shurim and panels of Shabbaton, so stay tuned for all of that. Uh, with that said, we are very fortunate to be led in the series by Rabbi Dr. Richard Hidari, uh, and introducing our speaker is our Rosh Bet Midrash, Rabbi Joseph Dweck. B, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, uh, Rohad. And uh, hello, everyone. Good evening. Uh, our regulars will know that I, I don't usually do the introductions, but uh, for our esteemed speaker tonight, I felt that it was a privilege for me to be able to do the introduction. I'm also on leave, uh, hence the sweater, and uh, otherwise for our, our London or UK listeners, my jumper. Um, otherwise, I would have dressed up more properly. <laughs> but when I realized that the rabbi was coming on, I, I really wanted to be able to take the opportunity to to do the introduction for him. Uh, he doesn't need me to say, but uh, I so deeply respect him as a Tamil Hacham, as a scholar, and as a dear friend. And we go way back. So I am I'm so grateful. Uh, Rabbi Hidri, and honored that you have taken time and that you will be taking time over, over a series of three lectures to be able to enrich the Habura and uh, and those who are listening. We did a survey uh, a little while back, and we found that 91% of our members listen uh, to the recording. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's an on-demand kind of world, but I'm very happy with the people that have uh, come on, and I believe that more will. And I will say formally, uh, that Rabbi Dr. Richard Hidri is a professor of Judaic studies at Yeshiva University. He's a rabbi at Sephardic Synagogue in Brooklyn, New York, and he is the author of Dispute for the Sake of Heaven, Legal Pluralism in the Talmud, and Rabbis and Classical Rhetoric, Sophistic Education and Oratory in the Talmud and Midrash. He's currently writing a commentary on Talmudic discussions of Jewish holidays and recording Daf Yomi classes. Uh, they're available on YouTube, highly recommended. He also runs the websites teachtorah.org, pizmonim.org, and rabbinics.org. Hacham, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Dweck. Thank you, Sina. Thank you to all of the leadership of the Chabura. Chazakim Uberuchim for all of your efforts. Uh, the, your lectures and publications are on such a high level, sophisticated, but also interesting and relevant covering topics that uh, many other institutions and groups uh, are ignoring, but really bringing um, so much, uh, especially of uh, the Sephardic heritage uh, to the floor and helping us appreciate um, all of its richness. So thank you for all your efforts. And for that reason, I'm very honored to be joining today. I'm gonna be, uh, this will be the first of three part series that's surrounding um, uh, the discussion of my book, Rabbis and Classical Rhetoric. And so the main question is, what did Chazal think about Greco-Roman philosophy and culture? And I'm going to share my uh, screen. 
so that we can look at our sources together. We're going to be talking about rabbis, uh, rabbinic derashot, uh, the setting and structure of rabbis as speakers. Um, that's, that's our focus today. Uh, but some background work, I'm going to be talking about language. I'll just give you the structure of the topics. We'll see, be seeing some stories because we want to keep it interesting and entertaining. And then I'm going to talk about the rabbinic public lectures, or derashot, on Shabbat, on holidays. Uh, we'll hopefully get into even a little bit of archaeology, and then I'll end with a, a couple of uh, full examples of rabbinic derashot, and we're going to read everything in context of, um, of the rabbi's historical setting in the Greco-Roman world. So we'll start off with something very basic, just about vocabulary. Everything goes back to words, and there are hundreds of Greek words in rabbinic literature. Uh, there's lists and lists of them. Here's just a few examples that you may be familiar with. Avir means air. You can even see the original Greek letters uh, and sounds in the, in the Hebrew word avir. Afikomin, that we know, all, all know. Um, komer means to eat, if you know some Spanish. And epi means after. So this is something that you have after the meal. Bima is a stage. Demos means dismissed. Bilon means a curtain. Kartis is a document. A lot of these are such familiar words in Hebrew uh, that we may not realize that they are Greek words unless you go back to the origin. Listis means a robber. Mastirin is a secret, like mystery. Sanhedrin, which is amazing, the highest court that decides all of rabbinic law is itself a Greek word. Sanegoria means defense. Farhesia means something in public. And two words that were going to come in handy today, pulmus means a war, like an English word polemic, and ritor or redder. A, a redder was a very important job in the Greco-Roman world. world. Uh, this would be someone who taught the art of argumentation and speaking. If you want to become a lawyer or a politician or just a generally knowledgeable person, uh, so the rhetors would travel from place to place, uh, teach their craft to students, but also give public lectures. They were the rock stars of their time. When they would come to, uh, to, uh, to a city, uh, it, they would fill up a theater or a stadium or an outdoor space, and people would come and be entertained, uh, whether they were coming to praise uh, someone or something, describe an event, or if you wanted to hire them, if you needed help, as for a lawyer in court. Okay, so that's just a little bit about how, how deeply the rabbis are embedded in a culture that is speaking Greek, and they know a lot of Greek words themselves. Um, could you strike up a conversation in, in, in Greek with a typical Tana or Amora in Israel? The answer would be kind of like English in Israel today. Uh, if you go to the tourist area in Israel or Tel Aviv, um, imagine people will, most Israelis will know uh, English quite fluently. Uh, if you go to some small village um, uh, or, or uh, uh, you know, Haredi uh, area where they're not learning um, uh, secular studies, then they might, they'll know some, a few words, maybe a little bit broken, uh, but won't be able to have a conversation. So something like that was similar uh, back in the times of the Talmud. And this, uh, this will be a jumping off point to think about um, uh, more serious issues of the philosophy, the thought, the law, the culture, how much did the rabbis and the Jews engage 
in the world around them. Okay, I'm going to read a quote from Chacham uh, uh, Yosef Ba'ur. Uh, this is a, it's a, a difficult quote, but this quote, I have to say, was the inspiration for me to write the, the book that we're talking about. I really wanted to understand this quote more and felt I had to, I had to delve into it more deeply. So here's what Chacham Faur has to say in his book, The Golden Doves. In the mind of the Hebrews, the universe is represented as the writing or active speech of God. Okay, so that by itself is a beautiful sentence. And of the Hebrews, of the Jews, all those who uh, study Tanakh. Um, so the universe, uh, how does God create the universe? Well, with words, yehi or so. That is evident. Um, but writing and creating, right, or go hand in hand, speech and reality, right? And the way you can think of uh, um, the way Adam, uh, when the animals are first presented to him, he names all of them in order to, uh, for something to exist in our minds, for us to have a conception of something. We need a word for it. It's very hard for us to think of something without a word. Okay, that's the first sentence, and maybe we take that for granted because we're so used to the idea. But in the West, philosophy, by the West, he means from Plato and onwards, uh, the Western philosophical tradition. Philosophy stood in hierarchical opposition to rhetoric. Uh, let me explain what that means. Uh, Plato decided that philosophy is a study of things as they are in their true essence, in their reality. And if you philosophize enough, conceptualize enough, you can figure out what those ideas, those ideals are. But that is separated from rhetoric, which is mere words. For Plato, he thought of words as kind of shopping bags that hold an idea. But then once you, once you deliver the package, you can throw away the shopping bag. Right? It's just kind of an outer layer. And really better to do away with words, because word, with words, you can trick people you can uh, convince someone, try to persuade them with nice sounding words, even about things that aren't true. And that's exactly what the writers did. If you think of modern lawyers, at least in America, uh, you, you know, what, what are they going to argue? Any, whichever side pays them, right? They're happy to argue for or against anything. So it's not about truth, it's about persuasion. And so Plato was um, skeptical about words, about language. And he said, let's get rid of language so that we can understand the things as they are in themselves without language. Um, and that's true for uh, a lot of Western philosophy for uh, hundreds of years. However, Ba'or continues, rabbinic tradition is the only intellectual and cultural movement to have continued developing since antiquity without a primeval rupture, an inaugural split, resulting in an endless series of hierarchical opposition. Uh, so this is a, a big statement to say that it's the only intellectual movement um, that did not have this rupture to say that ideas and words are separate. No, for the Hebrews, forever and for always, these are uh, intimately connected. You cannot have one without the other. To demonstrate this, uh, if you just think of the word, that means word. In Hebrew, davar, it means word or speech, but davad also means event, a matter, a thing. And so a thing and a word or an event, these are all the same. When I tell you a story, right, I am recalling the events, kind of reenacting them or naming an object tells me the essence of that very object. There is no matter 
without a word for it in Hebrew thinking. In Greek, however, they split this, the, these uh, two notions into lexis, which means a grammatical word like lexicon, is just the word itself, only the language, whereas logos, that means reason, logical discourse, the meaning, the essence of something without the word. Okay, this split between Hebrew and Greek thinking has tremendous implications that we'll come back to uh, during the series. Uh, but this here is uh, such an essential foundation that I thought this was worth knowing more about how the rabbinic tradition can be this only intellectual movement that has kept this important notion alive. All right, if anybody has any questions, feel free to interrupt um, and uh, happy to explore further. All right, so let's start with something very simple, just the Greek language. Now, when was it used? Where was it used? We saw a few words already. Uh, surprisingly, even in the Bet HaMikdash, during the second, uh, second Bet HaMikdash period, uh, we learned in Mishnah Shekalim that there were three collection baskets to collect the half shekel that everybody was obligated to bring. And they, they um, labeled each of them. And one opinion says, they said Aleph, Bet, and Gimel to know which one was filled up first and then they should use that one first. But Abishmael says, Yevanit Katuv Bahen, Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Gamma, right? They were written in Greek. Why would they write it in Greek? Uh, Tiferet Yisrael explains that during Bayit Sheni, during the Second Temple, uh, people were so used to written uh, Greek writing, even more than Hebrew writing. And so they wrote this. And note, this writing is actually for the Kohanim themselves so that they know which basket to use first. So even the Kohanim, uh, at least according to the Bishmael, were more comfortable uh, with Greek writing than with Hebrew. Um, even further, something quite surprising, when writing Sifret Torah, Tefillin, and Mezuzot, there's no difference between the laws of how to write the letters, except that um, Tefillin and Mezuzot have to be written in Ashurit, that's our, these very letters are written in Ashurit script. Um, Rabban Shibam Gamliel says, where Sifret Torah, according to the first opinion, can be written in any language. But according to Rabban Shiban ben Gamliel, Sifret uh, Torah may be written in Hebrew or in Greek. This is really mind-blowing. Can you imagine a Sefer Torah being a kosher Sefer Torah? You can use it in Bet Knesset, written in Greek letters. Okay, this may not mean, uh, it probably does not mean Greek trans translation, but rather Greek transliteration. You're still writing Bereshit, Bara, but in Greek letters, so that, well, that was easier for some people to read. Maybe people that lived in outside of Israel, like in, uh, in, in, in uh, Egypt, and they knew Greek well, and they wanted to be able to read a Sefer Torah. It was considered a kosher, um, a kosher Sefer, a Sefer Torah. Uh, Josh uh, notes in the chat that the word milah is also a Greek word taken by Hebrew, right? It's separate from Lexus and Logos. Okay, fantastic, thank you. For, uh, for adding that, very interesting. Okay, um, now here is um, the rabbis reflecting on this law that you can write a Sefer Torah in Greek. Like how did they justify uh, such a thing that the, you know, the, the holiest uh, text in the, should be in the holiest language, should it not? Well, Baruch HaPara taught, Yaft Elohim Yefet Vishkon Shem in the blessings of Noah to his sons, he said, Hashem should uh, bring, give beauty to Yefet, 
and he should dwell in the tents of Shem. Yefet is an ancestor of Yavan, of the Greeks. And so it's saying the Greek and Greek beauty and their language was considered very beautiful. It is a very beautiful language to, uh, to hear. Um, and, but all that beauty should be incorporated in the tents of Shem. Shem is, uh, are the Hebrews, uh, meaning that they will speak the language of Yefet in the tent of Shem. And this means even for something as holy as a Sefer Torah. Um, we can incorporate the Greek. We're not going to convert and go and be Greeks just because they have a beautiful language. The opposite. If they have something beautiful to share with the world, well, let's incorporate that into Judaism. This phrase, I think, represents the methodology that Chazal had to the world around them. Uh, they did not simply put up walls and say, we have, we'll have nothing to do with uh, the outside. Uh, because it's uh, all bad or too dangerous. They didn't do that. Um, they rejected some things, right? Some things have to be rejected uh, outright. Um, they also did not assimilate and say, well, we're all the same as everybody else. Instead, rather than walls or absolute uh, um, uh, taking everything in, they set up filters is a better example, right? Like if you wanna give your kid a, a phone, but you put filters so they can use it for good, but keep out the bad. Um, so sometimes they adopted various aspects of Greek uh, culture, but often they adapted it to their own use. They took something that was you know, beautiful, but not meaningful, and they kedushified it, made it their own, made it part of uh, the rabbinic system. And in that way, uh, they were able to keep their own identity and actually strengthen their identity by using some of the very tools that were outside and bringing them in. And this was, uh, rather than causing assimilation, would actually prevent assimilation and increase a Jewish pride and understanding and appreciation of Jewish law and lore. Okay, so we'll keep this in mind as we go through. Um, now, this wasn't always uh, fun. This wasn't always a fantastic relationship. From here, it looks like, yeah, the Greek and, and Hebrew uh, could get along just fine. There was tension, and tension was uh, came uh, forth most when there was when there were revolts. Uh, there were three revolts of the Jews against the Romans. Uh, two famous ones in seventy. Uh, we have the fast day tomorrow, commemorating uh, the destruction of Beit Hamikdash in seventy. The Bar Kokhba revolt, uh, some sixty years later. In between the two, uh, there was yet another revolt um, outside the land of Israel called the Diaspora Revolt. People know less about that. But during this time, then that's when Jews really felt the tension between themselves and their neighbors. And here the Mishnah says, Bepomus shel titos, gazru alatarot kalot, veshelo yelamed adam et beno yevanit. During the war, um, in printed editions, it says titos. If you look at the manuscripts of the Mishnah, the best ones, it actually says kitos, who we know he was a Roman general, during that diaspora revolt. In this war, uh, the rabbis decreed against brides wearing tiaras uh, because we should lower our, uh, our joy um, because of the results of these terrible wars. And they also decreed that one should not teach his son Greek. Uh, it's to give some analogy, it's like after World War II, when you hear German, it's grating against you and say, we don't want to speak German again. This is the language of our of our oppressors, of the enemy. 
And so too here, even though Greek, yeah, beforehand, maybe it sounded beautiful and maybe way after they could appreciate it, it again. But at least for this time period, there is a law not to teach our sons Greek. Okay, so we have a actual prohibition, um, but this prohibition itself was subject to a tremendous amount of discussion and controversy in the Talmud, the Talmud Shalmi here um, has a wonderful line, as can I teach my son Greek? He said, sure, teach your son Greek. Anytime it's not day and it's not night, go for it, right? Learn all the Greek that you want, right? Because um, there's a mitzvah to study Torah during the day and at night. And therefore, why would you bother keeping, uh, pulling your attention away from Torah to study Greek? It sounds from here that not, not necessarily something particularly bad about Greek, but that it's not as good as learning Torah. Uh, this year, Shalmi continues on and says, one rabbi, uh, it only says that you can't teach your son Greek. So one rabbi taught his daughter Greek because it would make her um, look, seem more sophisticated and eligible for marriage, like giving your daughter uh, violin lessons. And uh, his, colleagues, uh, um, his colleagues were against that. And uh, they said, this is, this is nothing to be proud of, right? Um, Greek is, uh, is, uh, uh, is something that we should keep away from completely. So I think that's fascinating, just that controversy itself about uh, teaching, studying and teaching Greek um, kind of reflects nowadays. We also have controversies about um, how much secular studies to teach in our schools. And so there's nothing new. I like these types of, uh, these kinds of uh, sections of Talmud. And you see, this was really a live issue. Um, and um, okay, JS asked uh, if I've seen this Yerushalmi to be used as a band against teaching philosophy too. Yeah, this is a good question. Um, in the Yerushalmi, it talks about Greek language. Um, in the Bavli, it talks about Greek knowledge. Uh, the reason for the shift between Yerushalmi and Bavli is because in Babel, nobody was speaking Greek, right? Even in general society. So they're still asking the same questions, uh, but rather about chokhmah or chokhmat yevanit, can we study Greek books, uh, Greek um, uh, uh, rather than specifically language? So yes, exactly in Babel, they're having a similar discussion, uh, which means that in, in Eretz Yisrael, even though they're talking about Greek language, the study of Greek language comes, al comes also with Greek ideas, because if you're studying the language, then probably you're going to practice on Homer and other poetry. And, and philosophical texts, and then you're learning the culture as you're learning the language. All right, so that's, um, that's all I want to say about the study of the language. Uh, to summarize, it's clear that the Chachamim knew a lot of Greek, many, many hundreds of words incorporated uh, into, um, into Hebrew. Uh, some rabbis knew it better than others, depending on where they lived. If they were in a big metropolitan uh, assimilated city like Kesaria, uh, then they probably spoke Greek fluently. If you were a Nasi in the family of the Nasi of the patriarch and had to go and meet with the emperor or with other governors, you'd also have to know Greek fluently. Um, others were more wary and said, let's keep away, let's keep our distance from Greek. Uh, but in one way or another, um, everyone was to a greater or lesser extent aware of uh, the Greek surroundings, and this is not only true of language, but also I'm going to show of literature. Okay, that brings us to the next section about stories. 
Um, when uh, Chachamim got up to give a derasha, uh, they had to make sure the audience was not only informed, but also entertained so they wouldn't fall asleep and they would make sure to come back. Amazingly, we know Chachamim were giving derashot in Batei Knesiyot or Batei Midrashot on Shabbat, on Shabbat at the same sermon slot that we still have today, right after reading the Sefer Torah Haftarah before Musaf. Right, we have lots of evidence uh, of this, even from texts from the second Bet HaMikdash. So what did their sermons look like? What? Can, can, I, can I ask a question on that? Sure. We, or we hear, or at least I hear often, that uh, the, the sermons that we have today were brought in by the Reform, um, at least in the Ashkenaz world. Is that, is, that a, is that an urban myth, or is there two different things, or uh, how did that relate? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think that that debate was um, at least in part about language. Can you use the um, can you use whatever you know German or English or um, the contemporary language uh, in teaching the sermon, or rather than just in Hebrew or Yiddish? Um, but um, I, plenty, I'm not going to show the evidence now. But uh, there's plenty of evidence that the Dirasha was um, for both rabbinic and and non-rabbinic sources that the that there was always a Dirasha during the tefillah. Yeah. Um, okay. So, great question. So, here's here's a couple of my favorite stories. Uh, here we have a mashal. The mashal. This is in Kohelet Rabbah regarding the pasut kasher yasemi betenimo. Just like a person comes forth from his mother's womb naked, so too a person goes back into his grave naked uh, with nothing to show for his labor. Ideas you can't take it with you. All right. To understand this pasuk better, Geneva said, it's like a fox who found a vineyard which was fenced in on all sides. There was one hole through which he wanted to enter, but he was unable to do so. What did he do? The fox fasted for three days until it became lean and frail, and he got through the hole. Then he ate of the grapes and became fat again, so they wanted to come out. He could not pass through at all. He again fasted on a nut for another three days until it became lean and frail, returning to his former condition and went out. When he was outside, he turned in his face and gazed at the vineyard and said, vineyard, oh vineyard, how good are you, are you and the fruits inside? All that is inside is beautiful and commendable, but what enjoyment has one from you? As one enters you, so he comes out. Such is the world. Okay, so the idea being that, uh, the, all the monetary possessions, uh, right, and cars and uh, yachts that a person can uh, acquire in this world, uh, since you can't take it with you, uh, you can enjoy it for a few minutes, but the only thing that lasts are your good deeds, your good name, um, Torah and Ma'asim Tovim, so focus on your on a spiritual benefit rather than materialistic. Okay, wonderful uh, 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 parable. Where did Geneva get this from? Did he make it up? Um, this is Kuala Rabbah, you know, sometime in the Talmudic era of the third, fourth, fifth century. Well, it turns out when we read Aesop's fables, which are hundreds of years earlier, we find a parable of a hungry fox bites some bread and meat left in a hollow tree by some shepherds. So it's a little different, right? It's a, it's a tree and it's meat. He crawled in and ate it, but his bellies got swelled so he could not get out again. He moaned and groaned. Another pass, fox passing by came up and said, what's the matter? He heard what had happened. He said to the first fox, I guess you'll have to just wait until you get back to your size, the size you were when you went in and then you won't have any trouble getting out. The story shows that time overcomes difficulty. 
Okay, so I think it's clear that this is the same fa same fable. Um, the a different there is uh, the few particular differences, but the main difference is the lesson that we learn from it. Uh, whereas Aesop learned that oh, just wait, time overcomes difficulties. Uh, what I think happened here, if, assuming that I don't think I'm not saying Geneva actually read Aesop's fables in uh, in any edition that we know of, but rather that this was a popular story, right? Just like people know about popular uh, uh, children's tales or or myths today, even if you never read them in the original. Uh, so too, this would be a popular story that readers, public speakers, all right, common people would share. And so when uh, this, uh, when Geneva uh, wanted to explain this pasuk, he used a common fable, a story that everybody knew and immediately would attach to, understand, and he said, well, but I'm going to change the lesson. The lesson isn't about time overcomes difficulties. It's much more important about spiritual versus material gains. Okay, so this is a good example of how the rabbis can take something from the world around them, kedushify them, right? Bring them into Torah to um, uh, help us appreciate an essential Torah message. Okay, one more example of a story. When Nabi Ameh and Nabi Aseh were sitting before Nabi Yitzchak Napacha, one of them said to him, well, the master, please tell us some halacha. We want to we lost some legal points. The other student, however, says, no, we want to hear agada." And so Rabbi Yisak Napacha, right, he didn't know what to do. When he started giving some agada, the other one stopped him and says, no, I don't want to learn agada." And the other, when he started the halacha, the other student said, no, I, I'm, not, I'm not in the mood for halacha. I can't concentrate on that right now. So Rabbi Yisak Napacha said, I'll tell you a parable. What's it like? To a man who has had who has two wives, one young and one old. The young one used to pluck out his white hair, all right, so that he'll look older. Oh, uh, he look younger. Whereas the old one used to pluck out his black hair so that the guy will look older, like she is. He thus finally remained bald on both sides. <laughs> he further said to them, "I will accordingly tell you something which will be equally interesting to both of you." In other words, if you don't let me say halacha, you don't say magada, I can't teach anything at all. But in the end, he found something that had both halachic and agadic value, and that's the continuation that I didn't print here. All right, a wonderful parable that he just says on the spot, but turns out that we have an exact parallel to this, again, in Aesop's fables, who writes, in the days of old, when men were allowed to have many wives, a middle-aged man had one wife that was old and one that was young. Ishlov very much desired to see him like himself. His hair was turning gray and so on. So every night she used to come and pick out the white ones and the other one used to pick out the black ones. So every morning she started to pick out the black ones. The consequence was the man was soon found, found himself entirely bald, yield to all, yield to all, and you will soon have nothing to yield. Okay, so once again, I think we see that this popular fun story uh, was known by Chazal and uh, used by the Bishak Napacha to um, apply to the differences between Halacha and Agada although he was able to find a compromise and bring them together. Okay, so that's the, some of the stories and we could go on for a very long time uh, if we wanted to point out all of the various parallels of Greek mythology or stories that the Chazal knew about. And often Chazal will quote them. Um, more often, they not only quote them, but also sometimes make fun of them, subvert them, sometimes mock them, Especially, especially stories that they learn from their Christian neighbors, 
um, um, stories from the gospels that the rabbis know, and they will retell them, but in a mocking way. And so often very sophisticated polemics. Um, so the rabbis were certainly well aware of the common culture around them and used it to great advantage. Okay, um, so that brings us to uh, the main part, which is rabbinic public lectures. And you know, I would love to try to reconstruct what it might have uh, been like to be in a Bet Knesset when one of the great sages of the Amoraic era you know, would get up in the Bet Knesset and deliver a derasha, which they did. Um, what was its structure? What was its content? Um, what would it be like? How many people came? Um, you know, is there any way we can reconstruct that? So I think there are. And uh, first, a few uh, stories about rabbis giving derashot. Here's one from the Talmud Yerushalmi about Mesha, the grandson of Birsha ben Levi, was carried in a litter, in a, in a palanquin, you know, the thing that four, four guys uh, carry on their shoulders and like a king or queen uh, sits in, in, in the middle of and being carried. That's Mesha, the rabbi, the, the sermonizer. He was carried to go up and preach in public on Shabbat. Uh, I assume they had Neruv, or maybe Chayno Asmo, not sure. Um, but the, this was such grandeur. And here we see a parallel also, just like um, uh, the Greek um, sophists, uh, Redders were the rock stars of their day. Everybody came out to see them. Uh, so too, the same accord was, was given to this uh, sage when he came to give the derasha. Um, uh, Talmud Bavli reports, the Bezada says, at first, when I saw the scholars running to lectures on Shabbat, I thought that they were desecrating Shabbat because you're not allowed to run, to exercise, pisiagasa, to, you're supposed to relax and walk in a, a slow, relaxing gait on Shabbat and not run. So he, so he thought that the scholars are violating Shabbat. But Abizara continues, since I saw, uh, since I have heard the sayings of Rabbi Tanchum, and every man should always, even on Shabbat, run to listen to the word of halacha, and it says, they shall walk after Hashem, who shall roar like a lion. I also run. Abizara says, the merit of attending a lecture lies in the running. And so now we have a, a live picture of, you know, about whenever a time the rabbis were giving a darasha, you see everybody from all over running to the Bet Knesset, right? Masses and masses of people uh, that are uh, trying to get in the door to get a seat so that they can hear the rabbi as he uh, walked in on, on, in, in, uh, on top of the litter. Uh, okay, a little bit uh, more on this. Um, and uh, yeah, Jay said they're accepting the truth regardless of its source. Exactly. Um, good. So uh, 12, when the Rabbi Meir used to preach in, in the Pizpirka, he would preach one-third halacha, one-third agada, and one-third parables. So the Pirka is the name of the public lecture that the teacher, the sage, the, the rabbi of a, of a community would give on Shabbatot and Yamim Tovim. It was also often, it could be very long. It might have been uh, during the afternoon or in the morning. We know some rabbis uh, spoke on Friday night. So uh, whenever it was, the pirka was expected to be attended by all of the rabbi students, as well as the general public. Anything that was taught in a pirka was official halacha lima'aseh. In other words, in a small class, you might discuss various views, and maybe it's this way, maybe that way. But if you heard it in a pirka, then you knew that was the bottom line. The structure of the pirka was a third halacha, a third agada, and a third parables. So now we get a sense of the structure as well. 
Um, there's another Talmud that says, while people were gathering to wait for the Pirka, there was an, a lower, a lesser sage that would give Divrei Torah, just not for people not to waste time while everyone was, was gathering. Okay, these sources, when put together, always remind me of my experience. Um, when I was in my gap year in Israel, every Motzei uh, Shabbat, I would travel from Gush Etzion to Yerushalayim uh, to hear the Derashot, you could call it the Pirka, of Chacham Obadiah Yosef. In Me'asharim, in Yazdin, he would give a big public lecture. It was attended by hundreds of people, and you had to really pack in and get there early, uh, or else you were in the overflow room where you only heard it over a, a live stream speaker. And um, there was a person that would give a, a shiur while people were, were gathering. The second Ravaja walked in, he would, they would, you know, just kick him off. Um, when when Ravaja walked in, he had bodyguards because everybody wanted to go and kiss his hand and, uh, you know, and get a blessing. And so he came in with kind of the grandeur that's uh, usually the only uh, very famous people get. And in his derashat, he would, in fact, uh, spend some of the time on halakha, anything he said in that lecture, you knew that you, you could go home and do it. And he also told stories and agadot related to the parashah. And it was very entertaining. He would play different characters and he would tell jokes. And that just kept people coming, people coming back to learn his musad and also his halakha. So that's kind of the sense I get, the closest thing I can find in modern times to the pirka. This was a major event that really brought the community together and uh, solidified their, their values um, and most important teachings. But all this was on the model of the redder, right? Who also would come and uh, speak uh, about various subjects, entertain, also talk about law, also tell stories, um, but this is the rabbinic version of it. Okay, um, amazingly, 13 says, when the elder sits and preaches, many converts become converted at the same time. And so we know from this that non-Jews um, would come and listen, uh, sit in. You know, there's famous stories about in, uh, in, in Muslim lands about uh, Muslim Arab musicians coming to the Bet Knesset to hear our chazanim, right? And, and uh, just as our chazanim learned so much from, uh, from Arab singers. And so and this is something similar that people would come from all over and they wanted to hear the derashah. And when they heard it, they said, oh, I like Judaism. Sounds better than whatever, you know, pagan or other uh, way of life they were uh, used to. And it was so uh, persuasive that they actually converted. All right. Um, okay, so that's a little bit about the Derasha. I want to talk about the structure of the Derasha. But first, I think it's worth spending a couple of minutes talking about the setting of the Bet Knesset. What did the Bet Knesset look like um, in the times of Chazal? Luckily, we have archaeological finds of a, um, a, a handful, more than a handful, of Batei Knesset from the times of the Talmud. And not only are these beautiful and instructive to look at, we can also learn a lot about the role of the rabbi in the Bet Knesset and the interaction uh, between the com common Jews that came to Bet Knesset and their cultural surroundings. So let's look at this for a few minutes. Um, um, how many of you have been to an Israel up in the north and seen any of these mosaics? Yeah, it looks like some of you. Yeah, good. So the first one I want to show you um, is even older than Bevis Marks. I know if it's possible to believe that, even older than Sherith Israel, in fact. 
Um, it's a bit called, it's in a, a city that's uh, near a kibbutz called Bet Alpha, and it dates to, to the 6th century CE. It was discovered in 1928 and um, dug up by the famous archaeologist, Professor Eliezer Sukenik. What he found when he dusted off, this, uh, this is actually some kibbutz workers. They were digging a channel, uh, an irrigation channel ditch. And as they were digging, they hit upon something hard and uh, they kept uncovering it until they found this beautiful mosaic that has three main panels, the top, the middle, and the bottom. And then there's a little something under it. So I'll show you what each of these are. I'm gonna do this very quickly because um, this is not my main subject. Um, but all the way on the top here, you see, by the way, in the, on the front, you see that there is a space for a Sefer Torah, a nook. Um, so in the topmost panel, you have a hechal, um, and uh, there are menorahs on the side, a shofar, an incense uh, pan, a, a lulav and a trog, and uh, very lions and various birds as decorations. So this is clearly a bet knesset. This is not a, it's not a church, it's not a temple, it's not a private home, um, because it definitely does have Jewish symbols and a Sefer Torah Hechal in the front. All right, so there's no dispute about that. The bottom, uh, the, the bottom uh, mosaic is nothing, none other than the story of Akedat Yitzchak. Here is Avraham, and how do you know, how do I know it's Avraham? Uh, it says Avraham right here, right on top of it. So in case you weren't sure, here is Yitzchak. Um, for anyone who loves Midrash, and the Midrash of Yitzhak is 37 years old, you see here he's a little kid in the 6th century Midrash. Here is the altar and the fire. And here is the Hine Ayil, it says in Hebrew, uh, behind the bush. And here is the Ne'arim together with their donkey. And uh, last but not least, here is the hand of Hashem uh, saying, Al Tishlach. Okay, so interesting, they would depict, they're not going to depict, you know, God himself, but to depict the hand uh, coming out to tell him, uh, do not kill the child. All right, so amazing, Akedat Yislak was important enough that they put it on the floor so that whenever they came to Bet Keset, I'm sure that they recited this very chapter and they wanted to see it and think about it, re-experience re it through, uh, through, the, uh, through the depiction. Um, this looks like kind of a child's uh, uh, drawing, um, this is not the best work that was available in, in Byzantine Rome, Roman Empire. Um, I think they got the you know, second-rate uh, mosaicist um, uh, because there are, better, there are better out there. Uh, right under that, you'll notice there are Greek letters. And anyone want to guess what the Greek letters say? Okay, maybe it's so obvious. It says donated. What? The name of the donor? Exactly, the name of the donor. Okay, good. Um, so something's never changed. And it, it's, uh, it's important that it's in Greek, right? Like today, right? I imagine plaques in our synagogues are in English and whatever language. There is Aramaic on this plaque as well. All right. But the main thing I wanted to show you is the middle, the, the center, the biggest part of the floor mosaic is a zodiac. Uh, right, the 12 signs of the zodiac representing the different constellations, and they're named in Hebrew like Sertan, Cancer, and Gemini, right, and um, all the rest of them going around in a circle. In the corners are these uh, female representations of the seasons, the four seasons, 
strangely, the four seasons do not line up with the correct months uh, of, the, of the year here. All right, well, no one's sure why. Maybe again, the mosaicist was a little confused. Uh, why, is there a, why is there a mosaic, which we would associate with um, uh, astrology, um, maybe idolatry, foreign ideas? Uh, what would that be doing in the middle of a Bet Knesset uh, floor? Um, I think we can explain this. It's not so hard to explain. Um, after all, the, the months of the year and the tribe, the 12 tribes are associated with them. Uh, there are some modern synagogues with uh, stained glass windows that represent these 12. Um, so, okay, it is possible. Maybe this is how they thought of the heavens. And there's a lot of references to the heavens in our prayers. So while they're not gonna, they didn't have technology to project things onto the ceiling, they can imagine looking at the floor as a projection of the sky. Um, so I think there are some expl good explanations why there's a mosaic. The real surprising thing, however, is what's in the middle. Uh, the middle here is a depiction of the, uh, of the Greek god Helios, the sun god, right? This is the sun god with rays coming out of his head. And you see moon and stars and four horses that are drawing the chariot. Because, of course, um, everybody knows how does the sun go across the sky? What's moving it? A chariot of horses. Um, and now this is a typical depiction of the Greek god that you find in all over in art and on jugs um, everywhere throughout the Greek and Roman empires. What is it doing in a Bet Knesset, however, is a real question. Anybody have an answer? So there's a few possibilities. One, maybe they just thought of it as, um, as art, as something beautiful. They saw this depiction around and they wanted to put a sun in the middle because after all, that's what all the constellations go around. And so this is how you draw a sun. Like, you know, today you draw a sun with a circle and things coming out of it. Maybe they didn't think of it in an idolatrous way. Um, that is possible. It is also possible that the mosaicist or the major donors of the synagogue put it in without asking the rabbi. I, I'm guessing that the rabbis would not have been okay with this. Um, and this shows that the, unlike, and at least some batekinesiot, the president of my synagogue is on here. So I have to be careful what I say. Um, unlike uh, some batekinesiot, where the rabbi is in charge, he calls all the shots, right? There are the, some batekinesiot now, and it seems this was the situation back then. The Bet Knesset was run by a lay committee and they, they uh, did things as they saw fit and they would invite the rabbi to come once in a while to give the Dadasha, but it was not run by the rabbis. Um, so I think this, if, if that's true, shows a common Jew. Just like today, you can see, you know, what does a, a regular average Jew do and not do? Everybody does uh, something for Pesach, a Pesach said there. Um, does everybody know about the fast of Aser B'tevet? Uh, not everybody is going to do that, right? And some things that people do are just commonly accepted, even if not acceptable to the rabbis. And so this might be a sense of what Jews were commonly doing. These are dedicated Jews. They're coming to Beth Knesset. They're donating to build the Beth Knesset. But um, maybe their understanding of Judaism was tainted by some of the, uh, some, some pagan ideas that the rabbis were actually not comfortable with. Um, okay, we know this from some texts as well, like the Targum Yonatan on the Pasuk that says, don't make idols. Uh, says, you're allowed to make a mosaic pavement impressed with figures and images on the floor, but just not for bowing down to. Okay, just be careful. Don't bow down to these images. Uh, so it seems that they definitely were aware of it. 
um, here from the Cairo Geniza, it says, in the days of Rabbi Abun, they began depicting figures and mosaics, and he did not protest against it. There's a big difference between not protesting and being okay with it. It's not like they asked him and said, yeah, do it. He just said, all right, you know, at least they're coming to Beth Knesset, and he didn't protest against the mosaics. Here it doesn't say, it's not talking about Helios specifically, but maybe about some of the other figures that they had um, were tolerated at least. Okay, now the story uh, does continue because we found in Hamat Tiberias in 1921, actually we found this earlier, um, a similar mosaic uh, and with a, with a zodiac in the middle and Helios with a face. This one, and some hundreds of years later, someone built a wall right over the mosaic. Um, uh, I guess they didn't care too much for it, uh, but we were able to uncover it and we still have it there. And uh, this is a close-up of what looked like. This one is in a way worse because it has figures, the figures of the humans, you can actually see their faces and their bodies, um, not always in the most, uh, most sneeze way. Um, so this one is in a way worse. Oh, sorry, this one, this was in a way worse. However, the third one is not the same is in Sipori. In Sipori, if you look carefully, in the middle, it still has the horses, but does not have the sun god in the middle. It has just a sun, but without a face. So it seems like the rabbis did get involved here and said, all right, listen, if you really need to put the horses, you know, okay, but don't just don't depict the sun god as a figure like here, because that's way too dangerous, way too idolatrous, you know, literally, Avodat Kochavim Umazalot, worshiping constellations. And so in Sipari, this one was only discovered in 1993, they seem to have made it better. Um, here's a Midrash that explains the, the, the placement of the zodiac. told Avraham, just like the Mazalot surround me and my glory is in the center, so shall your descendants multiply and camp under many flags with my Shekhinah at the center. So it could be that this had a lot of religious significance thinking of, even though they're depicting it in a funny way, but this is uh, Shem's presence in the center, and these are the tribes surrounding it. And so they came to Bet Knesset, where they all, literally would all gather together, and, um, and, uh, and they thought of their unity under the Shekhinah. All right. Um, one side point, you know, um, when someone has a, has a baby or gets, uh, gets, gets married, um, Ashkenazim to say, tend to say, Mazal Tov, right? which literally means, uh, a good constellation. I hope the baby's born under a good constellation, uh, which assumes astrology. And that's why I like the Sephardi um, greeting much better. Mabruk, right? You should be blessed. Hashem should bless you. And doesn't have all the ast astrology in it. So if anybody, um, Ashkenazim too, wanna, who want to take the, the uh, Sephardic greeting, you're welcome to. All right. So that's just a little bit about the, set, the, the physical setting of the Bet Knesset. And, um, and now I think we're ready to uh, look at the structure of the um, of a derasha in and in, in of itself. Um, we know from rhetorical handbooks, there are dozens of them from ancient times. Some people still study it today. If you go to college, some writing courses are called Rhetoric 101, still in, the, in this tradition. It says when you want to write an essay or compose an oration, you should use the following uh, steps. You should start with an introduction that will prepare the hearer's mind, get them to attention, praise the host, tell a joke, right? uh, talk about how I'm unworthy to, uh, to be here, or so on. 
And then you narrate the events. If it's a, a legal case, you can explain what the legal case is. Or um, if you're praising someone, you'll talk about their great uh, deeds in battle. And then you have a division in which you say, I'm, about, I'm going to argue my point based on A, B, and C, right? Based on the political, social, and economic uh, um, uh, factors. And then in the proof, you'll go through each of those three, okay, political, and you have a paragraph about it. You might have a reputation in which you say, I know the other side's gonna say that the opposite, but here's why they're wrong. And you bring it together in the conclusion by saying, you know, therefore, please vote for my resolution. It looks kind of like a five paragraph essay. Our five paragraph essay comes from it. If you've tried a chat, chat GPT, right? It, uh, they programmed in this, when you ask it to write an essay about something, it uses this exact structure. Okay, um, in my research, I found that um, Chazal used the very same structure in their derashot. And uh, we're not gonna have a lot of time to look at full examples, but just a little bit as a, as a taste and you could read more on your own. Um, uh, Quintilian, another teacher of rhetoric says that the exordium um, you can, the beginning of the introduction of it, um, you can, uh, you're allowed latitude. You can kind of trick the audience and start off with some foreign subject that seems to have nothing to do with your topic. So people are like, wow, why is he talking about that? And then you artfully make your way back to the main subject. That's what a lot of people would do. Okay. Now, this is what Chazal do as well. If anybody studied Midrash, everybody knows a lot of Midrash because we study Rashi, um, but right, Rashi is only quoting. Um, the classical um, Midrashic texts, um, uh, these which we have on, on all of Chumash and, and, and other books of, uh, of Megillot, um, these represent a written form of rabbinic Dadashat. So they're not exactly, it's not like they read them word for word or transliterated uh, the, them as they, as they spoke, um, but this is our best estimation of what a Dadashat looked like. And anytime you open anything in Vayikra they all use the same form at the beginning of every section, which is a piticha form. Okay, this, I'm giving you a key here. And with this, you can appreciate every, uh, every section of Midrash Agada. The Bitim Tanchoma opened. So this piticha, it was kind of like an unlocking of a pasuk. Even though this is in Vayikra, the very beginning, and what he's going to finalize on, the pasuk that he's getting to, is the first pasuk in Parashat Shavua, Vayikra El Moshe. Um, but he's not going to start off with, uh, you know, anyone today. They start off and say, this week's parasha is Vayikra. And then Hashem said, Vayikra El Moshe. And everybody is already asleep. No, so Rabbi Tanchum, uh, Tanchuma uh, knows better. And he quotes a pasuk from Mishle. And probably everybody knew Mishle by heart. Gold is plentiful, jewels abundant, but wise speech is a precious object. In the way of the world, a person who has gold, silver, precious stones, pearls, and every desirable good in the world, but who has no knowledge, what benefit does he have? The proverb says, if you have knowledge, what do you lack? If you lack knowledge, what do you have? Gold is plentiful. Everybody brought gifts for the, for the tabernacle. Jewels abundant. The Nisi'im of each tribe, they brought their gifts. But the, So we're, at, we're atomizing the pasuk. We're taking each phrase of the pasuk and explaining that it's talking about some contribution that various people made to the building of the Mishkan. But wise speech is a precious object. Who was the master of wise speech? Moshe's soul was grieved. He said, everybody brought gifts, but I didn't get to bring anything. 
HaKadosh Baruch Hu told Moshe, by your life, your speech is more beloved to me than all of these, all the gold and silver that everyone's bringing. And know that it's so, because out of all of them, scripture only called to Moshe, Vayikra El Moshe. And so now we end with the Parashat HaShavua. Um, when the rabbis back then and today get to Sefer Vayikra, we're always like, oh, what are we going to talk about? Where we have the great stories in Bereshit and Shemot. How are you going to make Vayikra relevant in a post-Temple age? So the rabbis in this Midrash say, simple, we're just going to talk about the first pasuk, Vayikra El Moshe. Hashem called to Moshe. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that mind-blowing? What kind of person was Moshe? Well, I'll tell you, everybody else was just focused on this, on the material gifts. Moshe, he has the gift of speaking, of teaching, and that is his greatness. Okay, so that's just one example of the, an exordium, the beginning of a speech, and you can imagine everyone in the audience, audience knowing the Pasuk and Mishle and wondering, where is he going with this? Is he talking about gold and silver? We get to get the Parashat shavua, and then he gives the clincher at the end, and it would have been great satisfaction, great entertainment, and most especially, uh, great inspiration. Um, all right, that's just a, a, a beginning of, uh, of a derasha. Uh, one of the longest derashot that we have, almost maybe a full derasha, is in Bavli, Masechet Shabbat, which we won't have time to read today, but I'll just show you the structure. Um, it starts with a halacha. Can you extinguish a lit lamp for a sick person on Shabbat so they can go to sleep? And he starts off with you, Solomon. Where is your knowledge? Where is your wisdom? Isn't it not enough that your words contradict those of David, your father, but you even contradict yourself, Shalomo? Wow, with an opening like that, everyone's going to stay. <laughs> um, and then he goes on and explains, and I'm, I'm going to prove it from these three pisukim. And then he's going to explain it. And he does, goes through number one. And he goes through number two. That itself has three parts. And he goes through number three. And then he comes back in the conclusion. He says, therefore, a lamp is called a lamp. A soul of a person is called a lamp. Better to extinguish a lamp of flesh and blood. Meaning, yes, turn off the fire. Should be extinguished uh, before the lamp of Agadosh Baruch Hu. A person's soul is Hashem's lamp. And to save a life, certainly you will extinguish the fire. So it's a beautiful, artistic creation uh, that we still have. And you see how the rabbis were masters of rhetoric, but they took that rhetoric and incorporated it, used it in their own teaching in order to inspire people with Torah. Um, if you have just another 30 seconds of attention, um, I think that the Pesach Seder is also organized in this very same format. Um, the Pesach Seder, where the head of the household would be presenting persuading everyone to say, let's appreciate Hashem's miracles. Let's say Hallel with enthusiasm. That's where we're getting to at the end of the night. And so how do you do that? Well, first you ask three questions. I know everybody knows four questions, but in the manuscripts, there are originally only three. For another time, I can explain how we got from three to four. And that way you brings up, bring up everybody's curiosity. It's a great way of starting off a speech. They say, don't you wonder why this night is different? And then you tell the story of Yitzhak Misraim, and you tell it in a shorter way, a longer way, right? However, depending on the age of the children there and, and, their, and their knowledge. And then here's the argument. Rabban Gamliel says, you have to explain these three things, Pesach, Matzah, and Marod. And then he goes on. And I imagine in those days, it wasn't be just two lines, but a whole paragraph, a whole uh, discourse about the meaning of Pesach the meaning of Maror, the meaning of Matzah. 
And after he gives the three proofs, then he, he brings it to a conclusion. Therefore, we should sing to Hashem and say hallelujah. And they would all start saying hallelujah. Um, so I think you can see that the structure embedded throughout, um, you know, the rabbis uh, took a line from the Iliad and said, speech sweeter than honey flowed from his tongue. And Shiashim said, anyone speaks words of Torah in public, they're not sweet to his listeners as honey that comes from a comb better if it, as if he had not spoken to him, right? So that was, uh, it was a high bar uh, to, to live up to, but that's, um, but that's what Chazal strove for. And to sum up, I think we can see how important language was, words were for Chazal. It was the whole world was created with words and just the, not only the physical world, but more importantly, the spiritual world, the Torah, our teachings, our law, our, our guide, our morals, our community is built on the words of the Darashah. And to make the Darashah better, more persuasive, more entertaining, if they could borrow some techniques from these experts who wrote books about uh, the art of persuasion and rhetoric, the rabbis took them and incorporated them for, to glorify the Torah and make it sweet as honey. Thank you, everybody. Wow, thank you so much, Racham. That was so very insightful. Um, I know Racham is pressed for time. Uh, does he have time for maybe one or two questions? Uh, let's do one or two questions. I do have to write. Okay. Thank you. Okay, so we have a question in the chat. Okay. Oh, in the chat. Uh, prohibition against depicting form of humans, especially about it is a problem. This is definitely a problem, and I imagine that uh, nobody would uh, do this in their Beth Knesset today. Um, I know the Beth Knesset around the corner from me. Um, uh, they 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 hired a painter. This is some decades ago. Uh, painted some things, and the rabbis came and saw it and objected, and they had to paint over them. Um, this happened in the in the Yeshiva University library just a few years ago. They painted some depictions, and the Russian Yeshiva came and said, "This is prohibited." So it is definitely prohibited, and that is well, so why it's so surprising uh, that uh, that it was done. I think it shows that it took some time for the populace to catch up with the uh, vision that, of, of the rabbis. Um, could be a time of Hellenization, and perhaps this was one of the impacts of Hellenization. Um, yes, definitely. This is um, in a way um, everyone is in, to some degree Hellenized, like today. You know, everyone is westernized, even the most Haredi or Hasidic or least, you know, everybody has some aspects. You know, if you have a, uh, a group of uh, in Williamsburg and they vote, right? Even though they're voting for their schools or whatever, voting is an aspect of Hellenization. So if we're speaking English, if I'm wearing a, wearing a jacket, so um, it's just a question of how much and how aware one is of taking in, take, uh, keeping out, filtering and adopting, adapting um, the, the situation around you. And I think my main point is that Chazal were not blind to the, the threats, but they were also open to the benefits. And uh, therefore they, um, they thought very carefully and deeply and con conscientious, conscientiously about how to bring the beauty of uh, Greek into Hebrew, even while keeping out the negative and uh, pernicious aspects of it. I'm also I'm getting requests for the uh, source sheet. Uh, would we be sure, able to... to I'll, I can send it to you uh, in, in okay. a few minutes. And I'll share that on the chat. Okay, we'll limit it to that. Uh, stay tuned for uh, the upcoming shiurim. The upcoming shiurim are for members, so make sure to, if you don't have membership, to get that and to join us for the coming shiurim. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining. Thank you so much, Chacham. Um, that's over, everyone. Is that the low? Okay, more beautiful.